Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to The Art Detective with me, Dr. Yanina Ramirez. I'm an Oxford lecturer, broadcaster and writer, but I am also your chief investigator of images. I'm delighted to be able to offer this podcast through the History Hit Network. And what's amazing is that we have embedded the images for you in the podcast. So while we're talking, you can bring the image up in front of you and that way you should be able to make better sense of it all. And I'm joined today by my friend, Dr. Jonathan Foyle. Now you have a wonderful CV in terms of the things you've been involved with, but you're also a broadcaster and you were very involved with all the royal palaces for many years, with the Monuments Trust. Tell us a bit about that. Oh, yeah, well, my, my training's quite eclectic. Um, I think silo study is a pox on humanity, really. You know, you can be over-focused. Yeah. And so I went from art design, I learned to draw in Lincoln. And Lincoln Cathedral persuaded me that if I was going to be an architect, it was going to be with old buildings. So I did architecture, worked on Canterbury Cathedral, went to Hampton Court for eight years and went into broadcasting 2003 onwards. And then for eight years ran the World Monuments Fund. So more practical involvement with keeping buildings standing. And as importantly, just drawing out the significance, making them mean things, because in care, the root of care really is understanding, I think. And you and I are kindred spirits in as much as we we love a good journey into symbolism, don't we? We like to pick apart the clues in objects and read symbols as coded messages. We started opposite end of the medieval spectrum, yeah. I think, haven't we? Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're there with the infrared of the Anglo-Saxons and I'm the ultraviolet Tudors looking backwards to where they got their ideas from. And somewhere in the middle, I think we'll meet about 1151 we day, won't we? <laughs> well, you're working on Peterborough Cathedral at the moment and that's, that's somewhere I think, yeah, we've got some common shared ground. That's it. That's my fourth monograph on cathedrals. And they've taught me a wealth about imagery and how really to look at medieval objects. Yeah. And it's interesting that you've obviously developed your draftsmanship skills, working on architecture. But the idea of looking minutely and pulling apart and scouring fragments of evidence, that came from archaeology, didn't it? Yeah, I did a PhD in archaeology of reconstructing Woolsey's Hampton Court because history is so often written by the winners, isn't it? Yeah. And there are about 7,000 pages of Henry VIII's account after 1528. But there's a 150 of Cardinal Wolsey because most of his papers went on a bonfire in Norfolk in the mid-18th century. But when you look at Hampton Court, you can see that Wolsey's masons died in the year Henry VIII took it over. So there's a complete break in the style of the building. And when you look at the stonework 
and the planning of the palace, you can separate the two of them. So that's what I did, is, is analysed it archaeologically. And what it taught me is that we have a lot of accumulated wisdom, which isn't really wisdom at all, it's habitual thinking. And so I've been a bit of a rebel ever since. <laughs> I think we're both rebels in that respect. But we are looking at something extraordinarily interesting today. And you first brought this to my attention. We did a talk at Hampton Court together, didn't we? Mm, it was, yeah, it was wonderfully exciting. But you told me about this discovery. Now, go on, tell the listeners what we're looking at today. Well, it started in late 2012. And I was in Arizona at the time because my in-laws have a what they call a cabin uh, in the White Mountains. And we were there for Christmas. And I had an email from my editor at the FT. I said, have you got anything for Valentine's Day? You know, they plan a couple of months ahead. And I remembered, I thought it was a wet Tuesday morning and I'd received some months earlier an email from someone who said, I've got this bed and it's got royal arms on it and I think it's Tudor. And um, I live near Hadrian's Wall. And I thought, well, I can't justify a train ticket to go and see something which obviously isn't real because it would have been lost Been recorded the Civil War. as well, you'd have yeah. thought. Well, if it had survived the Civil War, everyone would know about it. So I thought, well, that's obvious nonsense. So when she said, have you got anything for Valentine's Day? For some reason, it came into my head and I said, Jane, that someone got in touch and reckoned you got a king's bed. It's 99% certain or more <laughs> that it's absolute codswallop. But if you want me to follow that story, and he doesn't mind me as an archaeologist speaking as I find, how about that? And she said, well, just go with it. So I arrived on the 10th of January 2013 at Newcastle Station, met by this chap quite stocky guy. You can see he's been used to hauling beds and wardrobes <laughs> around. And he put this bag on my knee as I climbed into his car. And he said, what do you think of that? And inside this bag was a wooden lion with an iron, a cast iron screw coming out the bottom. And I thought, I don't know, because I've never seen anything quite like it. Oh, so yes. uh, it could easily be from the industrial age for all I know. But I thought, we're going to go and see this bed. It needs one fault to persuade me that it's wrong. All you need is one fault, one point of evidence that it's 19th century. I mean, I remember reading the accounts and at first your thoughts were this is a Victorian or this is a yeah. know, 19th century fake or emulation of a medieval Tudor-style bed. Yeah. yeah, and so I got there and he showed me this bed and every question I asked of it, it taught me about five things. Wow. And this is four years later. I've not found a single fault with it. It's been through scientific analyses, which have actually had different results. We'll talk about that later. Mm. But what came out from it more than anything is that when you look at it with both an archaeological and art historical eye, it's the precision of the language in this object which makes sense of all of the other cultural types of works of art. For example, manuscripts, architecture, sculpture, other carving, suddenly you see a whole system of meaning which has never been published before. Mm. And once you get onto that, you realise that nobody had the information to be able to cobble that together at any time before because I'm seeing it with eyes that last understood it probably 400 years ago or more. And so, in short, it seems to be the royal bed of Henry VII and Elizabeth of York. Is that right? This took... <laughs> quite a while. It is. It is. And more than the royal bed, it's their marriage bed. But this took quite a while to work out. So this guy didn't come to me and say, I've got Henry VII's marriage bed. He thought it might have come from a house in Lancashire where they visited. It was actually a relatively modest claim if you're going to talk about a royal bed. But I remember the point when, having looked at it for several months, it just popped into my mind that this is what it was. And I'll tell you what it was. It's a symbol of fertility mm -hmm. next to Henry. Mm -hmm. And they had a child within eight months of their marriage. 
And you don't need symbols of fertility once you've got a son and heir. And in fact, that opened up this whole system of meaning, which can only belong to the opening of their realm. This is essentially the physical manifesto of what we call the Tudor dynasty, of this couple who in 1485 have just defeated Richard III, and they are united in marriage and they're hoping for a son and heir. And this is an England which has been racked by battles. And what the bed explains is they saw themselves as akin to Christ and the Virgin who had come to establish a heaven-like peace on earth as their religious counterparts presided in heaven. It's a really heady thing. And to understand all that, this sounds very complex, but I'll take you through each part of working it out. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm goosebumpy already. And I remember when you told me, I, even I thought, it can't be. It can't be because, as you say, it should have been destroyed. It should have been lost, reused or recorded. They're the only fates for a royal bed. But am I right in thinking it was builders had just left it outside somewhere in Chester? Is that right? It was one of a number of antiques in a hotel in Chester in a place called Huff Green. Mm -hmm. And that hotel had been sold for developers who turned it into apartments. It's a Victorian place. But the hotel owner liked dark wood furniture. Of course, that's deeply unfashionable. But we love it. We love it. You and I. <laughs> We're fans. We do. And the guy who sold it to developers said to him, do you want to just leave your antiques because I'll buy them from you? He said, no, I'll have the local auctioneer sell them. And he left the bed disassembled in the car park of this hotel, picked up by the auctioneer, sold as a Victorian bed. What is it about kings and car parks? This I know. I, it's very funny, this, because I think the story was circulated just after Richard III, but the day it came out on Associated Press was 1st of April, and everyone <sighs> thought that it was an April Fool. In fact, it wasn't. <laughs> but I'm glad that they didn't circulate it then because we've found out much more since. Oh, my goodness. We should probably describe a little bit about what actually survives, mm. uh, what we can see in terms of the image. So what have we got? OK, so when he led me into his um, converted chapel, that's his house, I looked at the bed within this chapel space. Mm. It's not particularly broad. It's um, five and a half feet wide, but it is nine feet tall. It's a very tall gosh, object. Gosh. It has crests on it. So it's four posts with a canopy and had two crests at the time. We subsequently found where the missing front crest was. It's in the house of the Victorian discoverer who found it in 1842. No, I and, did not know that. Mm. So that piece of the jigsaw has been... Absolutely, yeah. We've, we found the remnants, which proves that this man knew it. And in fact, we've gone back through his letters and we can pinpoint it to 1842 when it was in a house near Huddersfield. And he'd, he had no idea what it was at that time. So that proves it can't be a Victorian object, obviously. Oh, my goodness. So he kept the crest... And he actually pedant. did more than that. He trimmed the crest down so that it served as a pediment over the door in his study. He liked it <laughs> merely as a decorative object. And there are royal arms now in St Chad's at Upper Mill near Manchester, overlooked, and it's now looking down on kids in a children's library. And people have walked past it day in, day out for absolutely years, not knowing this is part of the most significant royal object between Westminster Abbey's furniture and Charles II. But this era. is what I love about your approach though, Jonathan, because you have that eye for salvaging parts, elements of lost works. And what's incredible about, the, I mean, I think what's incredible about this bed is quite how intact it is, actually. Yeah, well, salvage is the word because when I approached it and looked at it closely, several things became obvious. It has many repairs. So the feet 
have been replaced with chunks of timber and the carving has attempted to match. These are like Victorian repairs. Mm. The thing has been drilled many times so that the mortises where the individual components are pegged together, you can see where the pegs have worn out because it's moved so much over the years and so they had to re-drill it. It has lots of extinct woodworm underneath the first layer of Victorian varnish so you can see it's old before that time. And so one of the questions I was asking is, to what extent is this all original? And how much of it is repair? And what can that tell us about the generations that it's known where people have kept it up and, you know, It's like archaeological it. strata within, a, within an object. Within one object, yeah. exactly. And so I said to him, what have people said about this woodworm? And he said, well, some people have said you never get woodworm on the surface of wood because, of course, they channel within the depth of it. So this must be salvaged timber. But actually, that idea is squashed as soon as you realise that the thing was painted because woodworm channel underneath paint and when they hit it they just travel beneath its surface because they don't want to eat it you see right. so I thought let's get my friend Helen Hughes who used to run English Heritage's lab to look at the surface to see whether she can find medieval paint because she's an expert in medieval paintwork and early modern but as soon as you find a pigment which was the process or the result of an industrial process like Prussian blue and chrome yellow. You can see how the Industrial Revolution has created these artificial colours that people in previous generations didn't think might be forensically held against them. So I got her in to have a look at it because this guy was obviously struggling with people understanding the object. So Helen, I remember I was filming actually the interpretation film at Bletchley Park, that's where it was. And I was behind Alan Turing's desk, you know, Codebreaker's yeah. desk, and my mobile phone went off. <gasps> And, an iconic place and, to be. and it was Helen and she said, Jonathan, she said, I've just got some results from the bed. She said it's covered in medieval paint and she said it's got lapis lazuli on it. Oh, so, my which goodness. Which is exceptionally rare. She said, I've only seen it one other time in my career. I can't believe that. And, well, um, and to have lapis as well, I mean, that's, again, another indication of the status of this bed and yeah. it's got lapis in it. Yeah. She, wow. she, she said this is an exceptional object. But now, with an archaeologist's hat on, you can't... Imagine away medieval paint. I mean, empirically, it's under a microscope, it's there. People might say, well, it's somebody who's so clever, they understood how to put layers of medieval paint on <laughs> and then strip it off again so it looks like you've just got remnants, you know. What, that, that sounds <laughs> and then crazy. leave it in a car park, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I said to Ian, look, you need dendrochronology to look at the tree rings. And he said, I've had that done. He said, it's wrong. Oh. And that was like an anvil dropping. Uh -oh. I said, what do you mean it's wrong? And he said, well, I had an analysis of the posts and what came back was American oak after 1756. Oh, grow, no. Growing in New York, New England. Now, how do you square Georgian American oak with something which is painfully not a Georgian object, which is found dilapidated in 1842, which has remnants of medieval paint all over it? And so we look for a second opinion. And we had several very curious experiences where people wouldn't give reports on this object <laughs> or agreed and then refused to take it on. And all through this, of course, you've got your sceptical hat on. You want to almost completely prove it beyond a doubt or not fully believe in it. Yeah, well, I'd written a piece for the FT. scene. Given that Jane had asked me to go and look at it and publish, she said, well, come on, you've got to publish your opinions. And so I did publish my opinion on that first meeting where I couldn't find any fault with it at that time. So I said I had to conclude it is a bed related to... Um, Henry VII in some way, it carries his arms. Mm. I certainly didn't proclaim that this was the marriage bed at that point. Mm. 
But everything I'd been looking at was confirming that first analysis, but actually placing it much more central to his identity in Westminster. And we'll move on to exactly why. So having this paint analysis done, mm -hmm. finding that there was this Georgian result really made no sense at all. We've just had new analysis done and the results from looking at every piece of it, in fact, there are 10 components, yeah. all come from what's probably the same tree because the rings all overlap. So what we can tell from this new result is that it's not cobbled together from old bits of medieval mm. wood and carved in the Victorian age so with old stuff. It's custom made. It's custom made. And that actually is backed up by the uniformity of the paint treatment on all of those parts. So it's not different bits. And coming from one tree, that's very interesting because this is made at one point in time. Mm -hmm. The tree might be significant. It could have been some kind of gift. We don't know about that. But what the last dendro told us is that they said it's undateable. Oh. And they didn't back up the American finding. They said this is undateable because it's been subject to insect attack on a four-year cycle, which is typical of a European beetle called the cockchafer beetle. <laughs> There are no, Damn cockchafer. Yeah, I know. There, there are no headlines in that uh, etymology, uh, or both. Um, the idea that this is subject to a typically European pattern of beetle attack brings it back this side of the Atlantic. Yeah, yeah. And so we had DNA analysis done. And we said, look, DNA people, there's a Singapore firm who'd worked on the Mary Rose timbers. Yeah. And they can tell you where a tree comes from, from its DNA profile. This is the new archaeology. And of course, all science should say the same thing. Mm. It mm. should do. And what they came up with, all three of the pieces that they got a positive result from, and they said, it's so hard to drill into because it's so old. They knew from handling the material, it's very much like the Mary Rose um, timbers. And what they came up with was they had a base sample of American white oak. They had a base sample of European oak. Every piece was European oak. Mm. Mm. So we had basically a duff reading on the dendrochronology, which has cost many thousands of pounds and several years to put right. And I've got to say, I've taken a lot of flack in the archaeological community because dendro is so often simply accepted at face value. But as a statistical technique, it can be utterly brilliant mm. and is frequently brilliant. But every now and again, you get a bum result and you really have to look at the authority of an object mm. and be open to testing and challenging science because it should bear up against other scientific techniques. This time it didn't. And also, I think what's interesting is bringing your art historical eye to it. Mm. It's the whole package, isn't it? Mm. It's not just what one reading is telling you. If the symbols and the imagery is telling you something else. Yeah. And we should actually have a look at some of the, the symbolism that comes out of this then. So, you know, we've got the day, we've got a sense of the dimensions. It's tall, um, nine by, by sort of five feet. And then... The beauty of the carving is extraordinary, isn't it? It's very crisp carving. It's done clearly when the timber is only mildly seasoned. Mm. And it's that wonderful balance between solid and void, which really gives you the sense of mastery behind this. This is not a crudely carved object. It's extremely crisp. It's about the best quality, I think, of English carving that you could expect in that period. And from some of the details, I've compared to West Suffolk. I think the master came from West Suffolk. Interesting. And I've also found details of Edward IV's head carver in the previous five years. It was called William Barclay. And I found details of his work in Suffolk as well. Now, when you think of where the oak forests were and mm. the tradition of timber building and the great wealth in the wool churches in Suffolk, I think this is where the best English carvers have their training ground. So the king, I think, used a Suffolk master. But what this bed does is translates the most up-to-date European continental manner. 
Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Into the service of Henry VII. Because you have to ask the question, firstly, why is this strange? Why is this organic, winding trails of branches with fruit all over it, um, with shields hanging from those branches? Why is this so strange to us when we think about Tudor objects that we know of? And the answer is that this is a court object which is appealing to an international audience. Yeah, straight away when I first saw this, I thought of the Burgundian paintings that you get in parts of northern France, where it is all about this foliage with shield with heraldry immersed within it. And it is coming out of a court tradition that is lavish. But I think what's also interesting, what you said there about this possibly being coming out of a school that's evolved from Edward IV's court, which was mm. so wealthy and lavish and over the top. Mm. The idea of this new dynasty, the Tudor dynasty, Henry starting it up, and yet looking artistically back for inspiration. Yep. He's getting legitimacy. He's getting a sort of artistic credibility from that sort of style, isn't he? He definitely is. You must remember that Edward IV is Elizabeth of York's father. Exactly. And having put his stamp down in royal identity, Henry VII is looking back down his line, down through Margaret Beaufort and Henry VI, who he regards as his uncle. So he's looking at Lancastrian court art, thinking, how do I pick up on this established language and talk to the audience that's used to assessing English kingship mm -hmm. uh, through a variety of symbols and manners and the language of heraldry and so on. But more than that, what does a king stand for? And one of the things that surprised me when first looking at this bed was I thought, what on earth are Adam and Eve doing on there? Because <laughs> you, you're not going to get a good night's sleep, are you, with, with this <laughs> serpent temptation. dangling between them? Yeah, we should describe it a bit. So this is the yeah. main central yeah. uh, panel of it, isn't it? And I adore it because I think it's very elongated. To me, this looks like it's coming out of a medieval tradition. It's not hyper-realistic. It's not got that Renaissance quality of perfect physiques going You're on. quite right. There are ribs, aren't there? There are. Sloping shoulders and pronounced bellies and things. We're not yet in the muscularity and square-shouldered Renaissance tradition. He looks a million miles from Hercules. <laughs> uh, but he's a good old Adam who typically has a beard. Yes. Um, 
But you're right. I mean, it's a rather sinister image because this is the moment of the temptation. So the serpent is writhing down around the tree of knowledge and then the apple is being shared. But what's really intriguing about this is the way that the apple and the two hands wrap around it with the serpent coming around. It's absolutely a joint enterprise, this, isn't well, it? Well, what you notice is there are two apples there, actually. Mm-hmm. And the serpent in its beak has got an apple. Mm-hmm. And then they've got an apple between their hands. Yes. Now, one of the moves in late medieval art, and you see this from the 14th century onwards, very much in the 15th century Netherlandish tradition of painters like Memling and so on, is that when you see a virgin and child together, as often as not, they've got an apple in their hands. And we know that apples are the symptom of temptation. It's not biblical. It's a medieval misunderstanding, isn't it, of apple and evil sounded quite similar in Latin. And so apples are the fruits from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But when the Virgin and Christ hold an apple, they are inverting that symbol of sin to one of salvation. And so you'll notice that the serpent or serpent-like creature can't give its apple away because temptation isn't working with this couple. They're holding their hands up to their breast because they're making a marriage pledge. They're looking straight at each other, right past that serpent, and they're holding the apple of salvation between them. So in their garden, temptation is nullified. Wonderful. Oh, this is serious symbolic detective work that you've been doing, Jonathan. I'm so impressed because absolutely, I think you're completely right. And it is the idea that this is a new union, something fruitful that is cancelling out previous sins. Mm. Again, we have to think of the context of the Wars of the Roses and the, the sort of inheritance that's coming here into their reign. And it is virtuous and it is pure and it is starting on a very good footing. Definitely, definitely. So there's a literary tradition behind this in the 15th century and it's writers like John Lee. Lydgate and so on, the the royal poet for Bury St Edmunds who writes for um, Henry VI. And amongst the royal flattery that comes out of these court poets is the idea that for an Adam there should be a Christ. Now, this is an old idea, isn't it? That yeah, the, kings are the skull Christ. of Calvary was the skull of Adam underneath from which the cross grows on exactly. the, uh, the crucifixion. So, yeah, there's always that connection. And, and, and so, yeah, people saw that from Christ's cross in turn, the timber of the cross prefigured the tree of life that comes in the book of Revelation and so on. So there are typologies like Adam and Eve answered by Christ and the Virgin. There are material parallels in the Bible. Now, can you see at the bottom between this couple, yeah. there is the cross flurry, which is the symbol of Christ or Asa symbol of Christ within a shield and from it comes the tree there so you go. from Christ's cross comes the tree of life the promise of heaven in the book of revelation but one of the things that this was an utter bombshell one night because I was reading through biblical texts thinking why has that serpent got a beak why does it look like a chicken's head yeah you know what are the lion and the dragon doing down there because that's more henry the heraldry henry the seventh has a greyhound and a dragon why isn't this his heraldry and then one night i was reading through the royal protocol in the late middle ages and they went to bed hearing psalm 90 i was just gonna say psalm 90 which is one of the most influential images in earlier medieval art it appears over and over and again the lion and the basilisk the dragon Go on. So so you see it in Charlemagne, don't you? You needed to phone me that evening. (laughs) (laughs) But but that suddenly dropped into place. This serpent is in drag. It's a basilisk basilisk. from Psalm 90. And there's the lion, which is a small lion that's trodden on, and the dragon is trodden on. These are symbols of evil which are all being overcome. I feel like high-fiving you for this. This is good work. (laughs) It was a a beautiful moment because I tell you what, the Victorian guy who found this bed made some copies and he didn't understand the root of what all this 
Lewis is saying. He just garbled the whole thing. And Psalm 90 has a very special place in royal protocol because it is recited at Compline, which is night prayers. And so when you take to a royal bed, that's what you hear. And the idea of David as the king and psalmist, and it's the ultimate David as a symbol of Christ image that's constantly repeated. So when you see the lion and the basilisk and the, yeah. the dragon, it's this idea of the kingly nature of Christ, the divine king. Yeah. And so all this is piling together of the king as a saviour. And when you look at it after the death of Richard III, the price of that war and the reward after that incredible cost that the nation has gone through, this is the reward, mm. is the new king saying, I promise you heaven. Now, who doesn't say that? Donald Trump will say, <laughs> you know, it's a new world for all Americans. This is the age-old political message of everything's going to be all right now and here is heaven. But look next to Henry, look what you find. Just to his left, above the, the banderole, yeah. is the acorn, mm. which is a symbol of male fertility. Absolutely. And next to her head is the only bunch of grapes, oh. which is Christ's blood. Yeah. Through the virgin comes Christ's blood, which is sacrificed for mankind. And that's, of course, where the red rose comes from, which is why it's so often shown with the virgin, is that is her charity. It's the sacrifice of her son's blood she made for mankind. And in the age when people took the host for communion, then that's what that's doing there. But I should just, just say for the listeners at this point as well that we are very deeply immersed in our medieval interdisciplinary studies. We can pull biblical references, we can pull these sorts of things we do. off the top of our heads. But this is quite esoteric knowledge. This is, is the sort of things you need to be able to read these sorts of objects. It might sound baffling at times. <laughs> but yeah. to the people looking at this, these symbols are clear, aren't they? They are a language that is communicating absolutely clearly. Like now we stop at a stop sign. Mm. These messages were instantly readable to educated Christians at this time. And I have to say the power of the genuineness and authority of this object is such that having understood the Psalm 90 reference, I've since found it on two English medieval gateways, which have never been understood before. Doesn't surprise me. Because why on medieval city gateways is because it's curfew time. People mm. are locked out at night. night. Time, and yeah, so the evil night. of night yeah. is locked out. And suddenly you see this system of symbolic knowledge. Mm. It's mm. so worth it. It seems very obtuse when yeah. you start looking at this stuff. But when you put the building blocks together... Oh, there's nothing more exciting. I, ah. This is why I love being a medievalist, because it is detective work. Mm. You know, it's serious detective work. And, and the moment that those revelations come and you start to think like they did and you, you immerse yourself in those ideas, yeah. it is goosebump eureka moments. And you have not only just you know, one eureka moment, you have managed to really identify something that is world class. This is something that is a truly important historical object, isn't it? This is an utter national treasure. Yeah. And, you know, I'll just remind you, here's a picture of the... There's the coat of arms. The coat of arms, which is trimmed, cut down and stuck in this Victorian guy's house. Wow. I mean, the 1840s was a time when people who hadn't formally valued this stuff, which is sitting around in lofts everywhere because it's so deeply unfashionable in the classical Georgian age. People were just starting to get interested in Walter Scott's romances and finding these bits of chattels and salvage lying around. And it's they used sort of it. active medievalism that you see then manifesting in the pre-Raphaelites imagery. And, and they're on the hunt for their version of the medieval past, aren't they? Absolutely. Pugin's churches is yeah. one, is, is the ecclesiastical part of it. But then in people's houses, they want almost to reinvent their medieval 
medieval ancestry. They have a perspective of history now. But the way they use this genuine salvage is really often indiscriminate. <laughs> and within these cobbled together interiors, there are sometimes some astonishing um, survivals. Yeah. So having seen this whole apple-holding monarchy as Adam and Eve, I then noted in a French drawing of Henry VII, there he is holding an apple. Mm. And so he must have gained a reputation of and this. this sort of symbolism of the apple. So what you're saying with the collection of the imagery, mostly on the bedhead, how does it relate to carvings elsewhere on the, the other parts? Well, is it, it's all royal, is it? There was an astonishing moment, actually, because the whole dispute with the first dendrochronologist just got very silly. Uh, we were, in fact, making a BBC programme at that time. Mm. What I kind of witnessed with an object which is so clear to me that it was genuine, but which had to hedge different kinds of opinions on it. I thought this just needs more time yeah. because, you know, the truth will out. And so the programme was basically just abandoned, really. The week after we'd, we'd abandoned it, the guy who did the conservation on this bed rang me up and said, Jonathan, there is an antique dealer in Chelsea and she's got four posts and they're exactly the same as the bed. And I looked online and thought, my God, they're dead ringers. And again, <laughs> they're salvage. And I went round to her flat. She laid them out on the floor and... I have never felt anything like it. It was a spine-tingling moment because there on the posts was the same fleur-de-lis. There was an H and an R on the posts. And there was a singe mark that you see in the tradition that medieval joiners had of this burning, slightly burning, joinery before they put it together to, in a sense, appease the fire spirits because fire was such a prevalent Fear danger. with a wooden bed, yeah. <laughs> uh, but there were these four posts and they were wall posts. Basically, once upon a time, they had panels between them. You can see the slots where the panels were. And one of them had a joint, uh, an extra piece added to it to lengthen it because it had served as a wall stud. It had been buried in a wall for yeah. centuries. And so here was Civil War spoil from one of Henry VII's palaces by the same hand that had done the bed. Oh and I took the post to Helen and said... What can you? These are much more weathered than the bed. Um, but I said to Helen, "What can you tell me from that?" And she said, "Well, it's got exactly the same two pigments as the mm -hmm. surface of the bed." So you can see the workshop slapping on coal black and iron red wow. for colour. So that's definitive proof that this workshop existed in the Middle Ages. And not just that, but that they were almost creating um, replicas of what was a well-known and important object. This was obviously a mode which the head carver had designed, um, which Henry and Elizabeth wanted to be represented by, and they used these same motifs to create ensuite interiors. Mm. Now, which one of the palaces these posts are from I don't know. We may never know. We should get a dendro result from those within the next two weeks. You think this was connected with Westminster, is that right? Well, this was another eureka moment, really, because the question is, why is the bed of these proportions? The headboard has two boards of 13 inches wide. It's flanked by outer panels, which are 12 inches wide. And there's something about the difference in the board width mm which is obviously quite significant. And the eureka moment came by figuring out, well, look, if this is a marriage bed, and the chronicler, Bernard André, writes about 1486, that he says that a marriage bed was prepared for Henry and Elizabeth. So we know one was made for them. But if it was made, where would it have gone? And there's one space which, since the 13th century, the royal beds were always placed uh, within, and that is in the uh, painted chamber in Westminster there was um, a very distinctive space and it was marked by posts, you see. We don't know what the material was, they're probably oak and they may have been gilded. And, but in about 1260, Henry III 
put up this railed, curtained enclosure for the royal bed, like a hospital bed. Well, because we should also say as well, I suppose, that the right of consummation, it was legally binding. It was incredibly important that it was recorded, witnessed. Mm. And so the idea of the union of Henry VII and Elizabeth, this is not some private, quiet bedroom somewhere, is it? This is something that the court would have been... Interesting. Well, the Painted Chamber was about the most distinctive royal space. It was commented on internationally and it's within Westminster Palace, which burned in 1512. We think of it now as just parliamentarians, but of course it began life as a royal palace next to the Abbey. And within this railed enclosure, Henry III had provided not just a space which defined the maximum width of this bed. That's what it represents. Mm-hmm. It's basically a passageway around the bed between it, anyway, and the, and the, and the curtains. But there was a mural against which the bed was set, and that mural has a set of arches. Mm-hmm. One broad, one narrow, a central broad one, another narrow, and a broad one on the right-hand side. And the proportions of the headboard fit exactly. Oh, my exactly, goodness. Exactly. Jigsaw puzzle yes. or what? Yeah. <laughs> and, and more than that, the level of the headboard is on line with the top of the wainscoting in that room, which you can see the scar of in watercolour recordings. But also the shape of the shield is the same trefoil (laughs) as the arches on the wall behind. Oh, my goodness. So not only has this bed been discovered, but you could put it back in the heart, the heart of the court. You can. Still the heart of of Britain and its identity. I mean, my goodness. You can. And then when you look at its legacy, there are some features. There are two on each of the side panels on the main headboard. Uh, One on the left, the middle, and the right-hand side of the footboard panels. And these look like... um, uh, what would you say that was? I mean, it looks like a flower, doesn't yeah. it? Of some sort. Nice daisy that yeah. sketched one on the phone. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I was looking at camellias, clematis rather, clematis, you know, yeah. which are Chinese flowers and all at the wrong period. But actually, they the are stars. Yeah, they are. Yeah. And there are seven stars divided into four in the headboard and three in the footboard. And actually, the instruction to divide seven stars, which are the seven gifts of the Holy Ghost, into four for the four evangelists and four principal virtues and three for the Trinity comes from Moralia in Job, another medieval text which basically tells you how to interpret complex biblical passages. Well, also numbers. Numerology was so important in medieval symbolism. Definitely. And astro- Fours and threes, and yeah, and astronomy. Astrology and astronomy too. So what you see then is this depiction of seven stars into mm-hmm. four and three. And what you'll notice is this belongs to the book of Revelation as well, where that's where the reference is manifested with Christ holding seven uh, stars for the seven churches of Asia in his hand. And there's no text that describes in particular Henry and Elizabeth's wedding, but there is a text that describes the wedding of their eldest son, Arthur, Prince Arthur, who married Catherine of Aragon in 1501. And in that marriage pageant, it says, this is Arthurus, illumining each coast with seven bright stars, seven gifts of the Holy Ghost as part of their pageant. And so the imagery on this bed informs the next royal marriage. That's my mind officially blown there. That's the thing. Oh, my goodness. Because... Ah, I mean, talk about setting up a family legacy. This is the family bed. This is where Arthur was conceived. This has this symbolism of the stars. And then when on his marriage, when he is going on to consummate, it's the idea of the seven stars going out. Amazing. We could talk about this all day. Unfortunately, we've already gone on well over. Way too long. Way too long. Utterly extraordinary. I am so delighted that there are people like you out there because otherwise these treasures end up in skips. (laughs) 
<laughs> this is a national treasure. You found it. You've decoded it. You're incredible to have done this work. I'm in awe. Thank you so much. I have to say, it's a joint effort. I'm very lucky to have met someone as stubborn as Ian Coulson, who said it's not Victorian. I don't know what it is. It's not Victorian. And yeah. no one's going to tell me otherwise. But it was a privilege to be able to work on this. And I have to say, I've sometimes described it as a once in a lifetime thing. But who the heck gets the chance once in a lifetime? Yeah. Well, hopefully it'll find its way into a major institution because that's where it deserves to be. Brilliant. Well, hopefully it will. And hopefully listeners will be able to go and see it in all its glory at some point soon. Thank you for sharing it hot off the press. Well, it's all still new, still evolving. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Nina. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 